0: Chapter Nine of The Master of Ballantrae, by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Nine: Mr. MacAller's Journey with the Master. The chaise came to the door in a strong, drenching mist. We took our leave in silence. The house of Deer standing with drooping gutters and windows closed, like a place dedicated to melancholy. I observed the master kept his head out, looking back on these splashed walls and glimmering roofs, till they were suddenly swallowed in the mist, and I must suppose some natural sadness fell upon the man at this departure, or was it some prevision of the end? At least upon our mounting the long bray from Durrisdeer, as we walked side by side in the wet, he began first to whistle and then to sing the saddest of our country tunes which sets folk weeping in a tavern wandering Willie," the set of words he used with it i have not heard elsewhere and could never come by any copy but some of them which were the most appropriate to our departure linger in my memory one verse began home was home then my dear full of kindly faces Home was home then, my dear, happy for the child, and ended somewhat thus. Now when day dawns on the brow of the moorland, Lone stands the house and the chimney stone is cold. Lone, let it stand now the folks are all departed the kind hearts the true hearts that loved the place of old i could never be a judge of the merit of these verses they were so hallowed by the melancholy of the air and were sung or rather soothed to me by a master singer at a time so fitting He looked in my face when he had done, and saw that my eyes watered. Ah, Mackellar, said he, do you think I have never a regret? I do not think you could be so bad a man, said I, if you had not all the machinery to be a good one. No, not all, says he, not all. You are there in error. The malady of not wanting, my evangelist but methought he sighed as he mounted again into the chaise. All day long we journeyed in the same miserable weather, the mist besetting us closely, the heavens incessantly weeping on my head. The road lay over moorish hills, where was no sound but the crying of moor-fowl in the wet heather and the pouring of the swollen burns. Sometimes I would doze off in slumber, "'when I would find myself plunged at once "'in some foul and ominous nightmare, "'from the which I would awake strangling. "'Sometimes, if the way was steep "'and the wheels turning slowly, "'I would overhear the voices from within, "'talking in that tropical tongue "'which was to me as inarticulate "'as the piping of the fowls. "'Sometimes, at a longer ascent, "'the master would set foot to ground "'and walk by my side, "'mostly without speech.' AND ALL THE TIME, SLEEPING OR WAKING, I BEHELD THE SAME BLACK PERSPECTIVE OF APPROACHING RUIN, AND THE SAME PICTURES ROSE IN MY VIEW, ONLY THEY WERE NOW PAINTED UPON HILLSIDE MIST. ONE, I REMEMBER, STOOD BEFORE ME WITH THE COLORS OF A TRUE ILLUSION. IT SHOWED ME MY LORD SEATED AT A TABLE IN A SMALL ROOM. HIS HEAD, WHICH WAS AT FIRST BURIED IN HIS HANDS, HE SLOWLY RAISED AND TURNED UPON ME A COUNTENANCE FROM WHICH HOPE HAD FLED. I saw it first on the black window-panes, my last night in dear. It haunted and returned upon me half the voyage through. And yet it was no effect of lunacy, for I have come to a ripe old age with no decay of my intelligence, nor yet, as I was then tempted to suppose, a heaven-sent warning of the future, for all manner of calamities befell. Not that calamity, and I saw many pitiful sights, but never that one. It was decided we should travel on all night and it was singular once the dusk had fallen my spirit somewhat rose the bright lamps shining forth into the mist and on the smoking horses and the hodding post-boy gave me perhaps an outlook intrinsically more cheerful than what day had shown or perhaps my mind had become wearied of its melancholy at least i spent some waking hours not without satisfaction in my thoughts although wet and weary in my body and fell at last into a natural slumber without dreams yet i must have been at work even in the deepest of my sleep and at work with at least a measure of intelligence for i started broad awake in the very act of crying out to myself home was home then my dear happy for the child stricken to find in it an appropriateness which i had not yesterday observed to the masters detestable purpose in the present journey. We were then close upon the city of Glasgow, where we were soon breakfasting together at an inn, and where, as the devil would have it, we found a ship in the very article of sailing. We took our places in the cabin, and two days after carried our effects on board. Her name was the Nunsuch, a very ancient ship and very happily named. By all accounts this should be her last voyage. "'People shook their heads upon the keys, "'and I had several warnings offered me "'by strangers in the street, "'to the effect that she was rotten as a cheese, "'too deeply loaden, "'and must infallibly founder if we met a gale. "'From this it fell out we were the only passengers. "'The captain, Mamerti, "'was a silent, absorbed man, "'with the Glasgow or Gaelic accent. "'The mates, ignorant, rough seafarers, "'come in through the hawsse-hole, "'and the master and I were cast upon each other's company.' The nonsuch carried a fair wind out of the Clyde, and for near upon a week we enjoyed bright weather and a sense of progress. I found myself, to my wonder, a born seaman, in so far at least as I was never sick, yet I was far from tasting the usual serenity of my health. Whether it was the motion of the ship on the billows, the confinement, the salted food, or all of these together i suffered from a blackness of spirit and a painful strain upon my temper the nature of my errand on that ship perhaps contributed i think it did no more the malady whatever it was sprang from my environment and if the ship were not to blame then it was the master hatred and fear are ill bed-fellows but to my shame be it spoken i have tasted those in other places lain down and got up with them and eaten and drunk with them and yet never before nor after have I been so poisoned through and through in soul and body as I was on board the nonsuch. I freely confess my enemy set me a fair example of forbearance. In our worst days displayed the most patient geniality, holding me in conversation as long as I would suffer, and, when I had rebuffed his civility, stretching himself on deck to read. The book he had on board with him was Mr. Richardson's famous Clarissa, and among other small attentions, he would read me passages aloud. Nor could any elocutionist have given with greater potency the pathetic portions of that work. I would retort upon him with passages out of the Bible, which was all my library, and very fresh to me, my religious duties, I grieve to say it, being always, and even to this day, extremely neglected. He tasted the merits of the work like the connoisseur he was, and would sometimes take it from my hand turn the leaves over like a man that knew his way, and give me, with his fine declamation, a roland for my Oliver. But it was singular how little he applied his reading to himself. It passed high above his head like summer thunder. Lovelace and Clarissa, the tales of David's generosity, the psalms of his penitence, the solemn questions of the book of Job, the touching poetry of Isaiah, they were to him a source of Entertainment only, like the scraping of a fiddle in a change-house. This outer sensibility and inner toughness set me against him. It seemed of a piece with that impudent grossness which I knew to underlie the veneer of his fine manners, and sometimes my gorge rose against him as though he were deformed, and sometimes I would draw away as though from something partly spectral. I had moments when I thought of him, "'as of a man, a pasteboard, "'as though, if one should strike smartly "'through the buckram of his countenance, "'there would be found a mere vacuity within. "'This horror, not merely fanciful, I think, "'vastly increased my detestation of his neighbourhood. "'I began to feel something shiver within me "'on his drawing near. "'I had at times a longing to cry out. "'There were days when I thought I could have struck him. "'This frame of mind was doubtless helped by shame.' because I had dropped during our last days at Durrisdeer into a certain toleration of the man, and if any one had then told me I should drop into it again, I must have laughed in his face. It is possible he remained unconscious of this extreme fever of my resentment, yet I think he was too quick, and rather that he had fallen, in a long life of idleness, into a positive need of company, which obliged him to confront and tolerate my unconcealed aversion. "'Certain, at least, that he loved the note of his own tongue, "'as, indeed, he entirely loved all the parts and properties of himself, "'a sort of imbecility which almost necessarily attends on wickedness. "'I have seen him driven, when I proved recalcitrant, "'to long discourses with the skipper, "'and this, although the man plainly testified his weariness, "'fiddling miserably with both hand and foot, "'and replying only with a grunt. "'After the first week out,' we fell in with foul winds and heavy weather the sea was high the nonsuch being an old-fashioned ship and badly loaden rolled beyond belief so that the skipper trembled for his masts and i for my life we made no progress on our course an unbearable ill-humour settled on the ship men mates and master girding at one another all day long a saucy word on the one hand and a blow on the other made a daily incident there were times when the whole crew refused their duty, and we of the after-guard were twice got under arms, being the first time that ever I bore weapons in the fear of mutiny. In the midst of our evil season sprang up a hurricane of wind, so that all supposed she must go down. I was shut in the cabin from noon of one day till sundown of the next. The master was somewhere lashed on deck, Secundra had eaten of some drug and lay insensible, so you may say I passed these hours in an unbroken solitude. At first I was terrified beyond motion, and almost beyond thought, my mind appearing to be frozen. Presently there stole in on me a ray of comfort. If the nun foundered, she would carry down with her, into the deeps of that unsounded sea, the creature whom we all so feared and hated. There would be no more master of Ballantrae. The fish would sport among his ribs." his schemes all brought to nothing his harmless enemies at peace at first i have said it was but a ray of comfort but it had soon grown to be broad sunshine the thought of the man's death of his deletion from this world which he embittered for so many took possession of my mind i hugged it i found it sweet in my belly I conceived the ship's last plunge, the sea bursting upon all sides into the cabin, the brief mortal conflict there, all by myself in that closed space. I numbered the horrors, I had almost said, with satisfaction. I felt I could bear all and more if the such carried down with her, overtook by the same ruin, the enemy of my poor master's house. Towards noon of the second day, the screaming of the wind abated. The ship lay not so perilously over, and it began to be clear to me that we were past the height of the tempest. As I hoped for mercy, I was singly disappointed. In the selfishness of that vile, absorbing passion of hatred, I forgot the case of our innocent shipmates, and thought but of myself and my enemy. For myself, I was already old. I had never been young. I was not formed for the world's pleasures. I had few affections. It mattered not the toss of a silver tester, whether I was drowned there and then in the Atlantic, or dribbled out a few more years, to die, perhaps no less terribly, in a deserted sick-bed. Down I went upon my knees, holding on by the locker, or else I had been instantly dashed across the tossing cabin, and, lifting up my voice in the midst of that clamour of the abating hurricane, impiously prayed for my own death. Oh, God, I cried, I would be like her a man if I rose and struck this creature down. But thou madest me a coward from my mother's womb. O Lord, thou madest me so. Thou knowest my weakness. Thou knowest that any face of death will set me shaking in my shoes. But lo, here is thy servant ready, his mortal weakness laid aside. Let me give my life for this creature's. Take the two of them, Lord, take the two, and have mercy on the innocent. "'In some such words as these, only yet more irreverent "'and with more sacred adjurations, "'I continued to pour forth my spirit. "'God heard me not, I must suppose, in mercy, "'and I was still absorbed in my agony of supplication "'when someone, removing the tarpaulin cover, "'let the light of the sunset pour into the cabin. "'I stumbled to my feet, ashamed.' and was seized with surprise to find myself totter and ache like one that had been stretched upon the rack. Secundra Das, who had slept off the effects of his drug, stood in a corner not far off, gazing at me with wild eyes, and from the open skylight the captain thanked me for my supplications. "'It's you that saved the ship, Mr. Mackellar,' says he. "'There is no craft of seamanship that could have kept her floating. "'Well, may we say,' except the lord the city-keep, the watchmen watch in vain. I was abashed by the captain's error, abashed also by the surprise and fear with which the Indian regarded me at first, and the obsequious civilities with which he soon began to cumber me. I know now that he must have overheard and comprehended the peculiar nature of my prayers. It is certain, of course, that he at once disclosed the matter to his patron. And, looking back with greater knowledge, I can now understand what so much puzzled me at the moment, those singular and, so to speak, approving smiles with which the master honoured me. Similarly, I can understand a word that I remember to have fallen from him in conversation that same night, when, holding up his hand and smiling, Ah, Mackellar, said he, not every man is so great a coward as he thinks he is, nor yet so good a Christian. He did not guess how true he spoke. For the fact is, the thoughts which had come to me in the violence of the storm retained their hold upon my spirit, and the words that rose to my lips unbidden in the instancy of prayer continued to sound in my ears. With what shameful consequences it is fitting I should honestly relate, for I could not support a part of such disloyalty as to describe the sins of others and conceal my own. The wind fell, but the sea hove ever the higher. All night the nunsuch rolled outrageously. The next day dawned, and the next, and brought no change. To cross the cabin was scarce possible. Old, experienced seamen were cast down upon the deck, and one cruelly mauled in the concussion. Every board and block in the old ship cried out aloud, and the great bell by the anchor bits continually and dolefully rang. One of these days, the master and I sate alone together at the break of the poop. I should say the Nonsuch carried a high, raised poop. About the top of it ran considerable bulwarks, which made the ship unweatherly, and these, as they approached the front on each side, ran down in a fine old-fashioned carven scroll to join the bulwarks of the waist. From this disposition, which seems designed rather for ornament than use, it followed there was a discontinuance of protection, and that, besides, at the very margin of the elevated part where in certain movements of the ship it might be the most needful. It was here we were sitting, our feet hanging down, the master betwixt me and the side and I holding on with both hands to the grating of the cabin skylight, for it struck me it was a dangerous position, the more so as I had continually before my eyes a measure of our evolutions, in the person of the master, which stood out in the break of the bulwarks against the sun. Now his head would be in the zenith, and his shadow fall quite beyond the not-such on the farther side, and now he would swing down, till he was underneath my feet, and the line of the sea leaped high above him, like the ceiling of a room. I looked on upon this with a growing fascination, as birds are said to look on snakes. My mind, besides was troubled with an astonishing diversity of noises, for now that we had all sails spread in the vain hope to bring her to the sea, the ship sounded like a factory with the reverberations. We spoke first of the mutiny with which we had been threatened. This led us on to the topic of assassination, and that offered a temptation to the master more strong than he was able to resist. He must tell me a tale, and show me, at the same time, how clever he was, and how wicked. It was a thing he did always with affectation and display, generally with a good effect. But this tale, told in a high key, in the midst of so great a tumult, and by a narrator who was one moment looking down at me from the skies, and the next peering up from under the soles of my feet, this particular tale, I say, took hold upon me in a degree quite singular. My friend the Count, it was thus that he began his story, had for an enemy a certain German baron, a stranger in Rome. It matters not what was the ground of the Count's enmity, but as he had a firm design to be revenged, and that with safety to himself, he kept it secret even from the baron. Indeed, that is the first principle of vengeance, and hatred betrayed is hatred impotent. The Count was a man of a curious searching mind he had something of the artist if anything fell for him to do it must always be done with an exact perfection not only as to the result but in the very means and instruments or he thought the thing miscarried it chanced he was one day riding in the outer suburbs when he came to a disused by-road branching off into the moor which lies about rome on the one hand was an ancient roman tomb on the other a deserted house in a garden of evergreen trees this road brought him presently into a field of ruins in the midst of which in the side of a hill he saw an open door and not far off a single stunted pine no greater than a currant bush the place was desert and very secret a voice spoke in the count's bosom that there was something here to his advantage he tied his horse to the pine tree took his flint and steel in his hand to make a light, and entered into the hill. The doorway opened on a passage of old Roman masonry, which shortly after branched in two. The count took the turning to the right, and followed it, groping forward in the dark, till he was brought up by a kind of fence, about elbow high, which extended quite across the passage. Sounding forward with his foot, he found an edge of polished stone, and then vacancy. All his curiosity was now awakened, and getting some rotten sticks that lay about the floor he made a fire. In front of him was a profound well. Doubtless some neighbouring peasant had once used it for his water, and it was he that had set up the fence. A long while the Count stood leaning on the rail and looking down into the pit. It was of Roman foundation, and, like all that nation set their hands to, built as for eternity. The sides were still straight, and the joints smooth. To a man who should fall in, no escape was possible. Now, the Count was thinking, a strong impulsion brought me to this place. What for? What have I gained? Why should I be sent to gaze into this well? When the rail of the fence gave suddenly under his weight, AND HE CAME WITHIN AN ACE OF FALLING HEADLONG IN. LEAPING BACK TO SAVE HIMSELF, HE TROD OUT THE LAST FLICKER OF HIS FIRE, WHICH GAVE HIM THENCEFORWARD NO MORE LIGHT, ONLY AN INCOMMODING SMOKE. WAS I SENT HERE TO MY DEATH, SAYS HE, AND SHOOK FROM HEAD TO FOOT. AND THEN A THOUGHT FLASHED IN HIS MIND. HE CREPT FORTH ON HANDS AND KNEES TO THE BRINK OF THE PIT, AND FELT ABOVE HIM IN THE AIR. The rail had been fast to a pair of uprights. It had only broken from the one, and still depended from the other. The Count set it back again, as he had found it, so that the place meant death to the first comer, and groped out of the catacomb like a sick man. The next day, riding in the corso with the Baron, he purposely betrayed a strong preoccupation. The other, as he had designed, inquired into the cause, and he after some fencing, admitted that his spirits had been dashed by an unusual dream. This was calculated to draw on the baron, a superstitious man, who affected the scorn of superstition. Some rallying followed, and then the count, as if suddenly carried away, called on his friend to beware, for it was of him that he had dreamed. You know enough of human nature, my excellent Mackellar, to be certain of one thing, I mean that the baron did not rest till he had heard the dream. The count, sure that he would never desist, kept him in play till his curiosity was highly inflamed, and then suffered himself with seeming reluctance to be overborne. I warn you, says he, evil will come of it. Something tells me so. But since there is to be no peace either for you or me except on this condition, the blame be on your own head. This was the dream. I beheld you riding, I know not where, yet I think it must have been near Rome, for on your one hand was an ancient tomb, and on the other a garden of evergreen trees. Methought I cried, and cried upon you to come back, in a very agony of terror, whether you heard me or no not, but you went doggedly on. The road brought you to a desert place among ruins, where was a door in a hillside, and hard by the door a misbegotten pine. Here you dismounted, "'I still crying on you to beware, "'tied your horse to the pine-tree "'and entered resolutely in by the door. "'Within it was dark, "'but in my dream I could still see you "'and still besought you to hold back. "'You felt your way along the right-hand wall, "'took a branching passage to the right, "'and came to a little chamber, "'where was a well with a railing. "'At this, I know not why, "'my alarm for you increased a thousandfold, so that I seemed to scream myself hoarse with warnings, crying, it was still time, and bidding you be gone at once from that vestibule. Such was the word I used in my dream, and it seemed then to have a clear significancy, but to-day, and awake, I profess I know not what it means. To all my outcry you rendered not the least attention, leaning the while upon the rail, and looking down intently in the water. And then there was made to you a communication. I DO NOT THINK I EVEN GATHERED WHAT IT WAS, BUT THE FEAR OF IT PLUCKED ME CLEAN OUT OF MY SLUMBER, AND I AWOKE SHAKING AND SOBBING. AND NOW, CONTINUES THE COUNT, I THANK YOU FROM MY HEART FOR YOUR INSISTENCY. THIS DREAM LAY ON ME LIKE A LOAD, AND NOW I HAVE TOLD IT IN PLAIN WORDS AND IN THE BROAD DAYLIGHT, IT SEEMS NO GREAT MATTER. I DO NOT KNOW, SAYS THE BARON. IT IS IN SOME POINTS STRANGE. A COMMUNICATION, DID YOU SAY? Oh, it is an odd dream. It will make a story to amuse our friends. I am not so sure, says the Count. I am sensible of some reluctancy. Let us rather forget it. By all means, says the Baron. And, in fact, the dream was not again referred to. Some days after, the Count proposed a ride in the fields, which the Baron, since they were daily growing faster friends, very readily accepted. On the way back to Rome, the count led them insensibly by a particular route. Presently he reined in his horse, clapped his hand before his eyes, and cried out aloud. Then he showed his face again, which was now quite white, for he was a consummate actor, and stared upon the baron. What ails you? cried the baron. What is wrong with you? Nothing, cries the count. It is nothing. A seizure. I know not what. Let us hurry back to Rome. BUT IN THE MEANWHILE THE BARON HAD LOOKED ABOUT HIM. AND THERE ON THE LEFT-HAND SIDE OF THE WAY, AS THEY WENT BACK TO ROME, HE SAW A DUSTY BY-ROAD, WITH A TOMB UPON THE ONE HAND, AND A GARDEN OF EVERGREEN TREES UPON THE OTHER. YES, SAYS HE WITH A CHANGED VOICE, LET US BY ALL MEANS HURRY BACK TO ROME. I FEAR YOU ARE NOT WELL IN health." OH, FOR GOD'S SAKE, CRIED THE COUNT, SHUDDERING, BACK TO ROME AND LET ME GET TO BED. THEY MADE THEIR RETURN WITH SCARCE A WORD. AND THE COUNT, WHO SHOULD BY RIGHTS HAVE GONE INTO SOCIETY, TOOK TO HIS BED, AND GAVE OUT, HE HAD A TOUCH OF COUNTRY FEVER. THE NEXT DAY THE BARON'S HORSE WAS FOUND TIED TO THE PINE, BUT HIMSELF WAS NEVER HEARD OF FROM THAT HOUR. AND NOW, WAS THAT A MURDER? SAYS THE MASTER, BREAKING SHARPLY OFF. ARE YOU SURE HE WAS A COUNT? I ASKED. I AM NOT CERTAIN OF THE TITLE, SAID HE but he was a gentleman of family, and the Lord deliver you, Mackellar, from an enemy so subtle. These last words he spoke down at me, smiling from high above. The next he was under my feet. I continued to follow his evolutions with a childish fixity. They made me giddy and vacant, and I spoke as in a dream. He hated the baron with a great hatred? I asked. His belly moved when the man came near him. "'said the master. "'I have felt that same,' said I. "'Verily,' cries the master, "'here is news indeed. "'I wonder, do I flatter myself, "'or am I the cause of these ventral perturbations?' "'He was quite capable of choosing out a graceful posture, "'even with no one to behold him but myself, "'and all the more if there were any element of peril.' He sat now with one knee flung across the other, his arms on his bosom, fitting the swing of the ship with an exquisite balance such as a featherweight might overthrow all at once. I had the vision of my lord at the table with his head upon his hands. only now, when he showed me his countenance, it was heavy with reproach. The words of my own prayer, "I will liker a man if I struck this creature down," shot at the same time into my memory. I called my energies together, and, the ship then heeling downward toward my enemy, thrust at him swiftly with my foot. It was written I should have the guilt of this attempt without the prophet. Whether from my own uncertainty or his incredible quickness, he escaped the thrust, leaping to his feet and catching hold at the same moment of a stay. I do not know how long a time passed by. I, lying where I was upon the deck, "'overcome with terror and remorse and shame. "'He, standing with the stay in his hand, "'backed against the bulwarks, "'and regarding me with an expression singularly mingled. "'At last he spoke. "'Macchella,' said he, "'I make no reproaches, "'but I offer you a bargain. "'On your side, "'I do not suppose you desire to have this exploit made public.' On mine, I own to you freely, I do not care to draw my breath in a perpetual terror of assassination by the man I sit at meat with. Promise me, but no, says he, breaking off, you are not yet in the quiet possession of your mind. You might think I had extorted the promise from your weakness, and I would leave no door open for casuistry to come in, that dishonesty of the conscientious. Take time to meditate. With that, he made off up the sliding deck like a squirrel, and plunged into the cabin. About half an hour later he returned, I still lying as he had left me. Now, says he, will you give me your troth as a Christian, and a faithful servant of my brother's, that I shall have no more to fear from your attempts? I give it you, said I. I shall require your hand upon it, says he. You have the right to make conditions, I replied and we shook hands. He sat down at once in the same place, and the old perilous attitude. Hold on, cried I, covering my eyes. I cannot bear to see you in that posture. The least irregularity of the sea might plunge you overboard. You are highly inconsistent, he replied, smiling, but doing as I asked. For all that, Mackellar, I would have you to know you have risen forty feet in my esteem. You think I cannot set a price upon fidelity? But why do you suppose I carry that Secundra Das about the world with me? Because he would die or do murder for me tomorrow, and I love him for it. Well, you may think it odd, but I like you the better for this afternoon. I thought you were magnetized with the Ten Commandments, but no, God damn my soul, he cries. The old wife has blood in his body after all. "'Which does not change the fact,' he continued, smiling again, "'that you have done well to give your promise, "'for I doubt if you would ever shine in your new trade.' "'I suppose,' said I, "'I should ask your pardon and God's for my attempt. "'At any rate I have passed my word, "'which I will keep faithfully. "'But when I think of those you persecute.' "'I paused. "'Life is a singular thing,' said he, and mankind a very singular people. You suppose yourself to love my brother. I assure you it is merely custom. Interrogate your memory, and when first you came to Duristia, you will find you considered him a dull, ordinary youth. He is as dull and ordinary now, though not so young. Had you instead fallen in with me, you would today be as strong upon my side. I would never say you were ordinary, Mr. Bally, I returned, but here you prove yourself dull. You have just shown your reliance on my word, in other terms, that is, my conscience, the same which starts instinctively back from you, like the eye from a strong light. Ah, says he, but I mean otherwise, I mean, had I met you in my youth, you are to consider I was not... "'always as I am to-day, nor had I met in with a friend of your description "'should I have ever been so. "'Ha! Mr. Bally,' says I, "'you would have made a mock of me. "'You would never have spent ten civil words on such a square-toes.' "'But he was now fairly started in his new course of justification, "'with which he wearied me throughout the remainder of the passage.' No doubt in the past he had taken pleasure to paint himself unnecessarily black, and made a vaunt of his wickedness, bearing it for a coat of arms. Nor was he so illogical as to abate one item of his old confessions. But now that I know you are a human being, he would say, I can take the trouble to explain myself, for I assure you I am human too, and have my virtues like my neighbours. I say he wearied me, for I had only the one word to say in answer twenty times I must have said it. Give up your present purpose and return with me to dear. Then I will believe you. Thereupon he would shake his head at me. Ah, Mackellar, you might live a thousand years and never understand my nature, he would say. This battle is now committed. The hour of reflection, quite past. The hour for mercy not yet come." IT BEGAN BETWEEN US WHEN WE SPAN A COIN IN THE HALL OF Durrisdeer. NOW TWENTY YEARS AGO. WE HAVE HAD OUR UPS AND DOWNS, BUT NEVER EITHER OF US DREAMED OF GIVING IN. AND AS FOR ME, WHEN MY GLOVE IS CAST, LIFE AND HONOR GO WITH IT. A fig FOR YOUR HONOR, I WOULD SAY, AND BY YOUR LEAVE THESE WARLIKE SIMILITUDES ARE SOMETHING TOO HIGH-Sounding FOR THE MATTER IN HAND. YOU WANT SOME DIRTY MONEY. THERE IS THE BOTTOM OF YOUR CONTENTION. And as for your means, what are they? To stir up sorrow in a family that never harmed you, to debauch, if you can, your own nephew, and to wring the heart of your born brother. A footpad that kills an old granny in a woolen much with a dirty bludgeon, and that for a shilling-piece and a paper of snuff. There is all the warrior that you are. When I would attack him thus, or somewhat thus, he would smile and sigh like a man misunderstood. Once, I remember, he defended himself more at large, and had some curious sophistries, worth repeating, for a light upon his character. You are very like a civilian to think war consists in drums and banners, said he. War, as the ancients said very wisely, is ultima ratio. When we take our advantage unrelentingly, then we make war. "'Ah, Mackellar, you are a devil of a soldier "'in the steward's room at Durrisdeer, "'or the tenants do you sad injustice.' "'I think little of what war is or is not,' I replied, "'but you weary me with claiming my respect. "'Your brother is a good man, and you are a bad one, "'neither more nor less. "'Had I been Alexander?' he began. "'It is so we all dupe ourselves,' I cried. "'Had I been St. Paul, it would have been all one. "'I would have made the same hash of that career "'that you now see me making of my own.' "'I tell you,' he cried, bearing down my interruption, "'had I been the least petty chieftain in the highlands, "'had I been the least king of naked negroes in the African desert, "'my people would have adored me. "'A bad man, am I? "'Ah, but I was born for a good tyrant.' Ask Secundra Das. He will tell you I treat him like a son. Cast in your lot with me tomorrow. Become my slave, my chattel, a thing I can command, as I command the powers of my own limbs and spirit. You will see no more that dark side that I turn upon the world in anger. I must have all or none. But where all is given, I give it back with usury. I have a kingly nature. There is my law. It has been hitherto, rather, the loss of others, I remarked, which seems a little on the hither side of royalty. Tilly Valley, cried he, even now, I tell you, I would spare that family in which you take so great an interest. Yes, even now. To-morrow I would leave them to their petty welfare, and disappear in that forest of cutthroats and thimble-riggers that we call the world. I would do it to-morrow, says he, only 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 what i asked only they must beg it on their bended knees i think in public too he added smiling indeed mackellar i doubt if there be a hall big enough to serve my purpose for that act of reparation vanity vanity i moralized to think that this great force for evil should be swayed by the same sentiment "'that sets a lassie mincing to her glass. "'Oh, there are double words for everything. "'The word that swells, the word that belittles. "'You cannot fight me with a word,' said he. "'You said the other day that I relied on your conscience. "'Were I in your humour of detraction, "'I might say I built upon your vanity. "'It is your pretension to be an homme de parole. "'Tis mine not to accept defeat.' Call it vanity call it virtue call it greatness of soul what signifies the expression but recognize in each of us a common strain that we both live for an idea it will be gathered from so much familiar talk and so much patience on both sides that we now live together upon excellent terms such was again the fact and this time more seriously than before apart from disputations such as that which I have tried to reproduce, not only consideration reigned, but, I am tempted to say, even kindness. When I fell sick, as I did shortly after our great storm, he sat by my berth to entertain me with his conversation, and treated me with excellent remedies, which I accepted with security. Himself commented on the circumstance. You see, says he, you begin to know me better. A very little while ago, upon this lonely ship, where no one but myself has any smattering of science, you would have made sure I had designs upon your life. And observe, it is since I found you had designs upon my own that I have shown you most respect. You will tell me if this speaks of a small mind. I found little to reply. In so far as regarded myself, I believed him to mean well. I am, perhaps, the more a dupe of his dissimulation, but I believed. And I still believe that he regarded me with genuine kindness, singular and sad fact. So soon as this change began, my animosity abated, and these haunting visions of my master passed utterly away, so that, perhaps, there was truth in the man's last vaunting word to me, uttered on the twenty-second day of July, when our long voyage was at last brought almost to an end, and we lay becalmed. "'at the sea-end of the vast harbour of New York, "'in a gasping heat, which was presently exchanged "'for a surprising waterfall of rain. "'I stood on the poop regarding the green shores near at hand, "'and now and then the light smoke of the little town our destination. "'And as I was even then devising how to steal a march "'on my familiar enemy, I was conscious of a shade of embarrassment "'when he approached me with his hand extended. "'I am now to bid you farewell,' said he, and that for ever. For now you go among my enemies, where all your former prejudices will revive. I never yet failed to charm a person when I wanted, even you, my good friend, to call you so for once. Even you have now a very different portrait of me in your memory, and one that you will never quite forget. The voyage has not lasted long enough, or I should have wrote the impression deeper. But now, All is at an end, and we are again at war. Judge by this little interlude how dangerous I am, and tell those fools, pointing with his finger to the town, to think twice and thrice before they set me at defiance. End of chapter nine. Recording by Thomas Copeland.